So we're very glad to, to welcome you here to the uh, panel on uh, biopolitics of the Plastocene. And we're very happy to have here tonight with us art historian Amanda Wetzke, artist uh, Dana Lelonek and, uh, and uh, Wood Roberto from Critical Ecologists at Goldsmiths who will respond to the presentations that we're here, we will hear first. So the pr uh, proliferation of plastics in, in the atmosphere, in uh, terrestrial environments, in aquatic environments, in, in, in the marine environment, is thoroughly transforming the ecology of the planet. And uh, for that reason, it's quite fair to say that we, re we really are living in the age of the Plastocene, uh, an era in Earth's history, perhaps seen as a, 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 a sub-period of the Anthropocene that started in the 1950s and uh, is strat stratigraphically marked in the depositional record of the Earth through layers, uh, new layers of plastic that are spreading increasingly uh, over the Earth and over time. Uh, and indeed, according to uh, paleobiologist uh, Jan Zalasiewicz, the, there has already been enough plastic produced in the world to cover the whole planet with the plastic film. And in terms of geological records of the age of plastic, Amanda, in her book, uh, uh, Plastic uh, Capitalism, Contemporary Art and Drive to Waste, which we will hear about tonight, amongst many um, approaches to contemporary art and plastics, also discusses plastoglomerates, or the technofossils that have been first sighted uh, on the Hawaiian beach in 2014, and have also been brought to critical light in a paper which was an interdisciplinary paper and it's significantly co-authored by an oceanographer, a geologist and an artist. And so what, what is more, when, when we think about microplastics, they're not just out there, they're also, we're, we're drinking them through the water we drink, we're eating them in our food, we're breathing them through the air, and in a way we've all become plastivores, just like the, you know, the albatross, uh, you know, which, which is one of the uh, you know, uh, most voracious plastivores, uh, plastivores on the planet, or the North Sea gulls, each of which has on average, as, as they've recently discovered, around 30 pieces of plastic in its gut. And uh, when Rachel Carson wrote her Silent Spring in 1962, a book which is now considered, widely considered, as uh, one of the first books on modern uh, uh, environmental uh, 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 sciences and uh, she addressed the effects of chemicals on the ecosystems and although she did write about effects such, uh, such uh, interventions might have on human health, uh, this has been subsequently mostly hidden uh, by the references to the lost song of the birds and in a way it's almost like this is happening to other species not to us humans. This might also be a moment to, to reread Murray Bookchin's book, Our Synthetic Environment, which actually was published uh, a few months before uh, Carson's Silent Spring, and it much more directly focuses on the uh, effects on, on health of the spread of synthetics into our surrounds. And uh, uh, clearly this, this kind of idea of the effects on, on health, of ingesting all this plastic, falls into the category of uncomfortable truths, and it's something we don't really hear that much about in public discussion yet. And now, this period when the books were published, the post-war period of then bipolar world, uh, when these books came out, when they were published, this was the era of unlimited possibilities of the new materials, which figured strongly in social and political imagination. And in parallel to consumerism and drive to growth in the West, there was also plastic socialism. 
And if we are to believe communist authorities, the plastic produced in socialist countries was much better than the one produced in the West, because the West, Western plastics was decadent, was manufacturing, it was weak, it was throwaway plastic waste, and it just was uh, providing cheap invitations for luxury goods, while the socialist plastic was much more durable and much better in quality. And uh, the author of a, a book, Synthetic Socialism, uh, uh, Eli Rubin, also looks into the reasons for this East German uh, development of, of plastics and the way plastics developed, particularly in the GDR in East Germany. And uh, uh, it really was very much about the need for substitution and about the shortage of raw materials, the shortage of materials for making steel uh, and, and also of wood. And it's, it's, it's notable uh, you know, in, in that regard that uh, you know, the first plastic car, the first mass-produced plastic car, the Trabant, was actually uh, started off in East Germany in, in, in the 1950s. And uh, it was somehow plastic in East Germany had this role in the imagination, and it was seen as an equal or something of equal value to other materials. So. OK, but East German plastic really relied on the oil that came from Russia, and they were from, uh, through the Freedom Pipeline. And they were promising, they were promised about 40 to 50 million tons of oil a year, and what they were getting was about 5 to 10 million in a good year, so it was really a very precious material. And really, we wanted to just point out to other parts to the plasticine of the 20th century, uh, not just the one dominant one that we hear so much about today, and also we want to think about this dynamic relation between past social, cultural, political histories and contemporary natures, which is something we expect to hear also from Diana tonight. And she also is author of a book which came out just last year as well, and that was a book that looked at the remains of a culture and nature, or archaeological culture and nature of plaster, where the shingle list still was uh, shot, and then everything remained on the site. So if we, if we look even a little bit further into the history of plastics, there are also a lot of other ironies which uh, have some contemporary relevance perhaps, uh, like the fact that um, you know, the, the, the origins of plastics in, in some ways lie in a competition that was started in 1867 to devise an alternative to the billiard ball. Since before then, billiard balls were basically uh, made from ivory. And uh, so it's, it's, it's a little bit of a paradox that the, 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 you know, the, the reason why plastic was invented or alongside the development of plastic actually helped reduce the, uh, uh, the killing of elephants for, for their tusks for ivory, but at the same time today, from the perspective of the capital scene, you know, we're so overwhelmed by plastic with this sort of pale insignificance. And uh, you know, when, um, just, you just have to think about sailors who uh, are sailing in the Pacific, there's, there's not a ship anywhere to be seen, and they come across these huge vortexes of waste in the middle of the Pacific, and uh, you know, really, really uh, brings home the, the extent to which plastic has proliferated and spread across the whole planet. But, uh, what apparently what's most shocking and most uh, <coughs> striking about the vortex of plastics in the Pacific is not the amount of it, but actually what's hidden from the view, what's, what is on the bottom of the sea, and what has already been disintegrated into microparticles. And as a result, we are now faced with a novel transformation in the biosphere, um, in that we are now turned into a cluster sphere, or the uh, biosphere which really micro and macro biotic communities are now adapting to this new age of plastics. So the, the questions that we're looking forward to, to discuss and to hear about from, from the panel to discuss with you are 
uh, such as uh, you know, what, what is the condition of life in this plastic sphere and how are we becoming so entangled with this new reality of plastic which is everywhere. Uh, how does the political notion of biopolitics appear in new light when attention is paid to political implication of actual introduction and intermixing of, the, of synthetics with the living organism? Also, how have artists utilised the materiality of plastics to investigate the breakdown between the, uh, of the division between the synthetic and the natural, and also the emergence of hybrid forms, and also have artists help us think about the extent of the adaptability of organisms to this new plasticised environment? In what ways has contemporary art disclosed the centrality of plastics to consumerist-driven economic systems since the mid-20th century and protested the culture of production that that waste represents. And finally, in terms of the questions we maybe want to direct people to, what are the most viable options in meeting the ecological and biopolitical challenges of the era of the plasticine? These are some of the questions that we hope to get some ideas about from tonight's panel, but before we, want, before we start the presentations, we just want to say a few words about the reception, which is not happening at the back of the room as usual, but actually uh, going to walk to uh, Arts Catalyst, which is a short distance from UCL. And uh, we want to say a big thank you to Arts Catalyst for host hosting our Arts Catalyst is uh, a prominent uh, arts organization that works at the intersection of uh, um, arts, uh, uh, science and ecology. And just a few months more is with us in London and they're moving to uh, Sheffield, which so we're very grateful about the great game, great game for Sheffield and lots of lost the, the, the area around here. But so in preparation uh, for the event, we also visited Diana Lelonek in her studio in uh, in Warsaw, and we you know we're very impressed by her work and diversity of her practice. But also she told us about the uh, melting party that she organised in the Basel Kunsthalle uh, just last uh, October. Uh, uh, based around various things with, with, with herbs that have been found in, in, in melting glaciers and also in the site that she works a lot with, the lignite uh, coal mine site uh, in central Poland that she also has a, uh, another very interesting project uh, on. And we, we had the idea of, tr of trying to do something on, that, on those lines here, which we'll be doing at Arts Catalyst, and so she's prepared, prepared a new uh, catastrophic menu, which also includes plants from London, from a brownfield site, polluted brownfield site, in London, which is now uh, the Phytology uh, Bethnal Green uh, Nature Reserve. And so we also, he's not here right now, we also want to thank uh, Michael Smythe for his assistance to help the curator of that space in, in, in uh, providing us with, and providing Diana with herbs to create this new brownfield brew uh, for us tonight. Okay, I think it's time to introduce our first speaker. Yes. So, uh, Amanda Burskes is a Professor of Contemporary Art History and Theory at the University of Guelph. Her research focuses on the aesthetics and ethics of art as they intersect with ecology and visual technologies of the late 20th century and the early 21st century. She's the author of Plastic Capitalism, Contemporary Art and the Drive to Waste, MIT Press 2019, as well as the Ethics of Earth Art, University of Minnesota Press, 2010, and also co-editor of Heidegger and the Work of Art History, Ashgate Press, 2014. Her current project, Ecologicity, Vision, and the Art for the World to Come, considers, considers modes of visualizing environments with a special focus on Arctic landscapes. So, I'll see you on that. Thank you.
see if I can make it across Thank you, Ruben and Maya, for this uh, generous invitation. Uh, it's great to be here tonight. consider some aspects of plastics uh, expressivity and dimensionality uh, with a view to thinking through how plastic behaves not just as a technologically complex material or uh, as an economic agent but as an aesthetic one as well which is to say that it operates on the planet aesthetically as a mediation of our perception of the planetary condition uh, in and through our processes of visual projection uh, and recursive introjection. To my mind, it's important that we maintain thinking about uh, the aesthetic operations of both art and plastic together. Uh, and that is without defecting uh, to a purely technological analysis, which I think can sometimes be a bit of a gravitational pull. So I want to run through a set of propositions that set up plastics, aesthetics, and technological mediation uh, into conversation, and ideally into conflict and differentiation. First, uh, that plastic is a planetary topology that conditions the future. Second, uh, we might think of plastic's geological agency in terms of what Astrid Nimanis calls post-human gestationality, uh, a heterogeneous reproduction of the human that integrates with the planet. Third, uh, the ways we envision and perceive plastic are integral to its gestation. Our perception is an operation of superjection. We become subjects in the ways we project and interject images. Plastic becomes visible in and through our reactions to it. These reactions are in turn integral to plastics gestation. So this situation gives rise to the statement, reaction becomes reality. And finally, we might consider with art how to become indifferent to plastic reactions. So I want to start uh, by considering the extent to which plastic forecloses futures under the pretense of disposability. Um, Australian cultural theorist Gabe Hawkins studies plastic topologically in order to show how it acts as both uh, an economic agent and a cultural schema. So its permeation and contamination of the environment is a function of its design as a disposable substance that paradoxically can't be eliminated. It exists as an incorporated waste, a waste that returns in ever more recalcitrant forms. Hawkins argues that plastic must be understood through its patterns of emergent causation, uh, which is to say her focus is on how plastic evolved through processes of chemical refinement that inform its production and uh, in the ways this refinement transformed relations 
both social and ecological, as it interpenetrated global and planetary systems. In other words, plastic produces topologies because it activates a material co-implication of dense chemical programming uh, and economic expressivity in the Earth's material substrate. At a key moment in the development of plastics, Roland Barthes described plastic in the following way. He says, whatever its final state, plastic keeps a flocculent appearance, something opaque, creamy and curdled, something powerless to achieve the triumphant smoothness of nature. He wrote this in 1957. At a time when plastics were indeed densely packed monocultures, we might even say dumb by today's standards. But as Hawkins charts, uh, plastic became increasing, an increasingly informed material whose chemical makeup was enriched as it was developed to fulfill the demand to be cheap, available, sanitary, light, durable, and expendable. And it's exactly this informational richness that destines it to persist, but become, uh, but become increasingly toxic as it accumulates in oceans, uh, open air landfills, in rivers, in animal bodies, uh, in the air. So it's not merely an economic agent insofar as it evolved in relation to market demands uh, and produced demands for disposability. Uh, more precisely, its force as a geological agent is fully revealed in the way it exposes the unthought of the economy, its total limitation as material intractability. So how are we to think about plastics' patterns of emergent causation, its coordination of economy, social relations, and planetary life? Um, in her analysis of the figuration of bodies of water, Estrita Nimanis develops the concept of post-human gestationality. Uh, to think of our bodies as bodies of water that are inseparable from global water, from other species that are also bodies of water, and from future bodies of water, is to alter our accepted ca uh, cartographies of space, time, and movement. To consider the post-human body as a body of water is more than just to understand uh, the confluence between bodies then. It's to understand that the logic of bodily water is gestational, giving rise to new lives and new forms of life that are never fully knowable. This uh, gestationality suggests that our bodies and planetary bodies span, material uh, span materialities in common across the ontological differences uh, between those who are implicated in them. So while uh, post-human gestationality is an embodied condition, it also tells us how our forms of material production and reproduction exceed the biopolitical regime and transition us into spatio-temporalities of the geological, or the term I prefer right now, the planetary. However, um, post-human gestationality, and I would specify for us today, plastic gestationality, is akin to what Stacey Alamo describes as a transcorporeal state of commingled uh, co flesh shared with non-living and often toxic material agents as well, such as, of course, plastics, 
but also heavy metals and other poisonous free-floating elements. Insofar as gestationality is an operative form of planetary conditioning, it, it, um, uh, its outcomes implicate ecologies and futurities. Uh, Alamo vividly describes the contemporary moment as an incubation of transforming material agency. Changes in the atmosphere and climate, ocean acidification, and the flooding of the environment with thousands of xenobiotic chemicals. We therefore uphold unstable bodily parameters within a vast genomic soup. That's her phrase. What better example of transformational transcorporeality, uh, for better or for worse, utopian or dystopian, than plastics gestation? But I want to keep with a concern for vision. Processes of envisioning and ultimately the disposition of our perspective. Our situatedness within the dilemmas of a plastic condition begs the question, how do we envision in and through uh, operations of plastic gestationality. In her analysis of the monitoring of the Pacific Garbage Patch, aka Plastic Gyre, one of many plastic gyres, uh, Jennifer Gabris argues that sensing technologies have become an integral part of mobile and traveling, uh, of a mobile and traveling society of objects forged by the aggregation of organic and inorganic materials in the ocean gyres. Scientific speculation, therefore, occurs in a processual system in which it informs the ocean environment alongside uh, plastic garbage and other debris as much as it extracts information. Geospeculation here uh, is a sensing practice that concreses in a nexus of materialities, including plastic to formulate a scaffolding by which it makes sense of the environment. In other words, the ways we take consciousness of the planetary condition, our visualization of it, becomes a mediating condition itself. Our processes of perception and perceiving perception engage the co-mingling of matter across ontological categories. Sensing technologies body outward and integrate themselves into planetary processes. In turn, they produce embodied recursions and interjections in perception, as we uh, relay information and informed imaging back into our discourses. Gabriel's approaches this phenomenon from the perspective of the aggregated objects that move as geoassemblages, uh, what she calls via Whitehead the society of objects. But insofar as perception is bi-directional, projecting into the environment and interjecting back into the human world of perception, we might also question how images concrete in perception and what happens to them once they do. I would suggest by way of provocation that the gestationality of plastic entails the production of a society of images that informs collective perception and that the emergence of a planetary consciousness is experienced in and through that society of images. More strongly, if we're perceiving by way of geoassemblages, of bi-directional images, imaging systems that terraform even as they inform perception, 
This is to suggest that images exert human perception as a planetary reality, and that the planet also perceives, or at least receives, the human geoassemblages of perception. It therefore becomes crucial to consider the intentionality of such societies of images and the collective perceptual affordances they generate. Elsewhere, um, I argue that ecological perception entails a circuitry across ecosystemic scales uh, from the human visual system, which includes the optical organs, uh, the neurological system in which they're implicated, practices of representation, and phenotypic changes that occur in response to the environment. In short, uh, that art cultivates a way of seeing ecologically within vision through its representational practices. It attunes the visual system to its own environmental projections and projections. To better understand that bi-directional movement, I turn to the concept of affordance, as defined by cognitive psychologist James J. Gibson. Gibson situated perception environmentally, arguing that exteroperception is accompanied by proprioception that to perceive the world is to co-perceive oneself. The activity of perception as a being moves through the environment is not a distortion or individual interpretation of the objectivity of the world, but rather a spanning of subjectivity and objectivity. This image of a Swiss army knife serves as both an example and a counterexample of Gibson's understanding of the human perceptual system and its ways of gleaning environmental affordances. On the one hand, humans possess sophisticated perceptual organs. On the other hand, however, these organs do not instrumentalize the environment in the manner of a tool that shapes. Rather, they are sensitized extractors of information from energetic stimuli. Our sensory instruments, including the eye, are not what we think if we assume that they carve or extract out information. Rather, <coughs> they exert themselves into the environment in such a way as to distill information in relation to the stimulation they project into the environment. Perception combines a flux of stimulation and the, envir and, and the invariant structure of the environment combined. This understanding of the objective environment of subjective perception is what allows the individual subject to exceed its own subjective perception. It's in this vein that Whitehead considers the subject processually in relation to the environment. The subject emerges as what he calls a superject, as it proceeds through it in the pursuit of its own fulfillment. The subject strives to actualize itself in its movement, uh, in its movement. Its fulfillment is therefore always premised on its own unlimitation into the environment and the return of its perception into, uh, into its being. The becoming of the superject through environmental process is therefore the becoming objective with the environment. The superject is the totality of the procession into the environment and the introjection of that environment as perception. Following Gibson, I want to recapitulate the dilemma of plastic as one in which our ways of struggling with plastic's topological spread over the planet 
interject plastic back into our perception. This is what makes it hard and painful to look at images of plastic's uh, gestational occupation of the planet and living beings. We are perceiving our plasticization. Even more, uh, to think about our attraction, uh, to look at it and look again. Plastic's expressivity is not just economic or social, but also aesthetic, and deeply a matter of its appearance materializing in our bodies, our vision, and our capacity to sense. Plastic's expressivity guarantees its topological spread because of its reactivity within perception. As in the case of fish and birds who are attracted to it, misidentify it, and consume it, like the albatross. Or we humans who misidentify it as useful. It is just visible enough to work, but be invisible enough to obscure its environmental effects in our life world until the paradigm changes and we start reading the environment differently, that is. And then suddenly we realize that it has been gestating for decades without us being able to stop it or even slow it enough to evaluate the predicament. I want to return to the thought that plastic not only embodies its economic value, uh, the essence of its economic value in disposability, but develops that quality so thoroughly that it reversed its own terms. It became so disposable, it changed scale, and now it has interpenetrated the planet and has become a more fundamental uh, recurrence. Plastic, therefore, expresses the economy as a self-consuming vector. In its eternal returns, it shows us something of its very logic. It not only stands for a new achievement emerging from the capitalist drive that spurred its development, but retroactively and quite uncontrollably informed that drive as plastic in and of itself. In other words, plastic is an economic expression that expresses itself as the self-voiding of the economy into the ecological. Here is where I'd like to pause on the notion of expression. It would be fair to say, I think, that plastic is both expression, as we commonly think of it, a kind of spatial movement from the inner to the outer, from the economic system to its consumers and out to the planet, a communication of the economic system to planetary systems. And it is also the unthought antithesis of expression, pure reaction with no content, and no defined spatio-temporal destination, only informational coordinates and force. As in the case of a chemical reaction, the catalytic movement is not so much intentional and responsive as it is encompassing and substantively irreversible. Whereas an expression might be subject to interpretation, what does this mean? A reaction is held to the basic mechanics of pure stimulus. A reaction becomes an indomitable reality. What we see from art, it seems to me, is a situating of plastic at that very fine split between its economic expression and its anarchical chain of reactions into subjective, social, biological, and geological terrains. Art makes evidence the span of plastic's topology of reaction as its economic expression. It shapes social parameters through its transposability across registers of reaction, while voiding itself uh, as the cause or origin of any of them. The virtuosic chemical reactions 
that produce today's plastic induce allergic reactions, say asthma caused by carbon-based and chemical air pollutions, emotional reactions, climate change panic and or denial, affective reactions, hollow affects, mimetic repetitions, or aesthetic reaction, the replication of plastic as a medium of representation. Plastic reactions appear to be expressions, but ultimately they eliminate vitalities as they flatten scales, beings, and objects into its common topology. Plastic is indifferent to us in this frozen state, even though it appears to want us to experience it and use it. In his series Murmurations, Ephemeral Plastic Sculptures, French artist Alain Delorme constructs digitally manipulated photographs of multitudes of plastic bags that are carried by the wind into cloud formations that emulate the protension, intention, and distension of a murmuration of starlings. The photographs capture the uncanny reality of plastic's topological spread into the air, life, climate, atmosphere. It does so by situating plastic and its chain of associations in aesthetic terms, in its appearance against colorful skies, especially sunrises and sunsets, dawns and dusks. The images have lost their ground. Their perspective has lifted off and is suspended so that only the tops of buildings, public monuments, the tips of wind turbines, factories, and power lines are visible. Thus, plastic's ubiquity registers as a rhythmic but seemingly automated play of petrochemical objects bound up in fluxes of air. Delorme describes his process of digital manipulation as a plastic surgery of the image. This technique is especially noticeable in his series Little Dolls, which was inspired by the American TV show Miss Beauty Children. Each photograph followed the same template, a little girl, a cake, brightly colored icing, and the presence of a parent. Delorme tampers with the girls' portraits by remodeling their noses, recoloring their eyes, reproportioning and standardizing their features, and at the same time trying to preserve a sense of childish innocence. The result is a curious amalgam of the digital projection of a real face that blends American ideals of adult femininity and childishness. At stake in Delorme's practice is a reconfiguration of the conflicts between an individual subject and its plastic contortions, between a singularity and its redeployment as a reactive multiple, between the plasticity of form and the bluntness of its artifice. The beautiful formations of starlings testify to the invasion of natural life by an outbreak of plastic. The plastic bags do not have the flocculent neon appearance of 1950s commercial plastics. The plastic bags, uh, sorry, instead they are shadowy, nearly transparent, only becoming noticeable as they aggregate into a set of black dots against the sky. The artificiality of plastic has been propelled from the objects of the 50s to the paints, peaches, yellows, and bright blues of the sky itself. Plastic has become dispersed into a generalized ethos, in the air as a surrounding condition, but in the image, it becomes visible in and as these plastic bodies that are overtaken and moved by the force of its sense effects. 
Plastic or plastic's origin in oil infrastructure is visible only peripherally as the intimation of a refinery smokestack at the margins of the image that poses a formal homology to the cloud of plastic starlings. There is another intimation of a technological response to envir um, environmental problems in the reference to the wind farm, but neither reference to technological infrastructure changes the gambit of the plastic bag. It has become its own self-organizing entity. If we were to repitch the dilemma of plastic in terms of its indifference to human worlds as it becomes a recalcitrant material, to a question of our differencing ourselves from it, then we might do so by way of a rethinking of its aesthetic dimensionality. While plastic emerges and spreads reactively in an absence of consciousness, so to speak, we can nonetheless short-circuit its reactive feedback loop and respond to its sense effects indifferently, in our vital bodily difference to it, but also as aesthetic disposition, indifferently. Not to be taken up in an environmental panic, but rather to take hold of its environmental gestationality. By way of conclusion, then, I want to situate a difference between two plastic scenarios. The first, a photographic series called Zatsuran, by Japanese photographer Haruhiko Kamaguchi. Kamaguchi shrink wraps couples in tense positions, surrounded by their favorite commodities, be they records, toys, wine bottles, or music <coughs> equipment like guitars or keyboards. In effect, the, couple, uh, the couples have become fused together with their objects as the premise for an ideal portrait in which the couple is preserved in plastic forever. While the portraits are Buddhic in spirit, Kamaguchi speaks about how this is a representation of the feelings of love that bind people together. Plastic is thus an unseen, transparent, and fully materialized, affectively charged condition that encases people, shapes their personalities, sociality, and bodily postures. Instead of developing in complex responsiveness, as the concept of plasticity implies, the couple is held in an incubated state. The second scenario, uh, the second scenario is Argentinian artist Tomas Saraceno's Uh, on space-time foam, a floating installation made of three layers of plastic film. <laughs> I did it again. <laughs> I'm in a feedback loop. If there's any illustration of that, it's this. Restarting, restarting, restarting. Okay. A floating installation made of three layers of plastic film that hang 20 meters above ground and are set at different air pressures to create levels of reflexive architectural space. As people uh, proceed across it, the plastic billows um, outward under their weight so that they tend to proceed slowly on all fours, stretching their limbs like spiders on a web. The title of the installation derives from quantum theory and suggests that subatomic particles can make alterations in the space-time continuum, thus producing a fourth uh, dimension of material reality. Saraceno imagines this fourth dimension as a set of suspended spatial parameters that defy gravity. The movement of visitors is entirely relational, provisional, and speculative. 
Any movement must also await the assurance of feedback in order for the successful fulfillment of a procession through the space. The installation therefore envisions a reality in which the totality of individuals' movement and environmental feedback produces a super-reality, a combination of the collective movement of visitors as they move in relation to one another through the plastic medium. This we might link to an effort of superjection through thinking of plastic's fourth dimensionality. Their movements generate feedback in the plastic layers so that this installation is constantly changing shape. The installation demands the internalization and anticipation of feedback between one's own movement, that of others, and the installation's reflexive output. The individual's procession through the environment could not possibly be linear, but rather demands that the human form contort itself into what Donna Haraway calls a string figure. To reconsider plastics as thesis allows us to think differently from its behavior as an economic agent or as mere material, though it is of course necessary to be informed by both of these. Instead, I would like to sit with the thought of plastics appearance in art and work through how we might resituate ourselves in the midst of plastics virulent movement in patterns of expression and reaction. Production, unlimited growth, and um, approach to the environment. And she uses photography, living matter, found objects, creating work that is interdisciplinary and often appears at the interface of art and science. And actually, I wanted to share uh, or refer to the words of a leading uh, Polish art critic who just published his review of the year 2019 and he finishes it with the climate turn. And this is what he said I'm going to quote. In Central European art, awareness of the danger of global warming is increasing. If we began the summary of the Lithuan with the Lithuanian pavilion, it is worth finishing it with Diana Lelonek, a Polish artist of young generation who became the face and voice of climate change art activism. It is even difficult to list all exhibitions, publications, lectures, and meetings with Lelonek, who, like Greta Thunberg, appears everywhere at least when it comes to the Polish art scene. This year, Diana was awarded the Politica Passport, one of the most important awards in Poland, and then did the residency and exhibition in Basel. So, if we all had so much energy, patience, and persistence, global warming could be stopped, maybe not in a year, but in 10 for sure. There is hope in art. So welcome, Diana. Thank you. Thank you um, for this beautiful introduction. Um, okay, I would like to tell you more about one of my 
uh, most important project. Um, maybe we can start with this website shortly. So I would like to tell you more about Center for Living Things. Um, this is project which I start uh, do in 2017. So it's a really long-term project. And it's dedicated to, we can say, a new kind of uh, environments uh, which appear um, because uh, of a production of waste, of course. And uh, I decided to make this project as a center, as a research center. Uh, so from the one hand, it's an artistic idea, but from the other hand, it's almost real institute um, where I make a research around illegal waste dumping sites, um, mostly in Poland. I did uh, uh, huge research around, around Poland and some different countries as well. And I was looking for uh, illegal waste dumping sites uh, in forests, next to uh, seaside, uh, in suburban places, and I can show you more. And uh, this research center um, has uh, these four kind of activity. So the first step is the field research. The second one, this is the most important part of the project, is institute collection. So I built uh, the collection of found objects, which I found at these illegal waste dumping sites. I would like to show you some later. Uh, it's Waste Plants Farm, I call it like this. Um, it's a space where my objects from collection uh, usually living in a greenhouse uh, at the Botanical Garden in Poznań. And I, I also try to find something like a new kind of classification for these objects. Um, the this is a part of the institute of the center collection. So, for example, it's a post-Adidas environment. Um, it's a, it's artistic project, so I play with uh, this uh, botanical kind of classification. But from the other hand, uh, these uh, informations are real, and I always check every species with scientists. So it's in between science and art. Uh, and I have collaboration uh, with Botanical Garden in Poznań. Um, this is the main site, site of the Institute, uh, of the Center for Living Things. It's the old uh, greenhouse at the Botanical Garden in Poznań. Uh, the Botanical Garden is a huge uh, official institution, but they decide to give me this one greenhouse because they didn't use it for years and it's not uh, important for for them anymore, uh, but for me it's perfect because uh, it's also it's it's empty. It's also overgrown by plants. Uh, it's not under control. Uh, people don't care about it anymore. So it's in opposition to the botanical garden because in the botanical garden everything is under people's control. So it's uh, it's growing spontaneously and uh, it's only under the plants control right now. So usually um, objects from the Center for Living Things living at this greenhouse and I put also some descriptions 
in the same way like uh, usually scientists do at the botanical garden. And now I would like to show you more pictures. Maybe I can uh, go to my presentation for a while. Um, yeah, I have a lot of pictures. Uh, okay. So I already talked about it. And uh, if you uh, if you Google a uh, um, Center for Living Things, uh, if you write it uh, uh, using Google Maps, you can find uh, some some things which I upload. Uh, because uh, usually when I do a field research, I also use Google Street View app, and uh, yeah, it's uh, some photographs for from spaces which I visited during my research. So for example, this is the post-electronical habitat next to Warsaw. And here you can see it's really, because it looks like a artistic installation. Uh, here it's a, it's a part of vacuum cleaners. Somebody just decided to left it there and put it in this way. It's really strange, probably uh, someone um, did their uh, like a illegal DIY recycling uh, because here it's a place after fire and there was a lot of uh, plastic uh, everywhere, but only plastic, every metal uh, probably went uh, somewhere, probably someone sold it. Uh, so it's like, um, I call it a post-electronical habitat. Um, so it's, uh, of course, it's also really interesting to uh, looking for the classification of it. Uh, how uh, this waste um, start to make relations with plants, with mosses, uh, with fungi and with other species. And it's, it's, for me, it's the most interesting things. It's, oh, for example, this is a part of old fridge covered by ly lichens. Uh, and Moses. Yeah, and uh, here, here you can see uh, some part of the project. Uh, I decided also uh, did a series of photographs to make a documentation of every object which I found. Uh, because in, at the Botanical Garden they are still growing and they are still changing. So um, I decided also to make the documentation. Um, so usually I do documentation um, like after I found something in the forest. So for example, this is a textile environment. It's a post-glove environment because it's based on old glove. Um, and it's really interesting how uh, these uh, things, because they are not our things anymore. They are not things anymore because it's, it became something like in between uh, nature and capitalistic overproduction. It's uh, like a transgression between these two uh, cycles. The circulation of living matter and the circulation of overproduction in a capitalistic system. So uh, this is the most interesting for me, how these two circulation are connected together and maybe we cannot say anymore that they are separate things. 
Yeah, and uh, sometimes uh, they are also brand. They, they have brand, do you know Rama maybe? Um, and for me it's also uh, incredible that uh, this kind of species can uh, find a new function for this waste. So, uh, no, in my opinion, uh, Homo sapiens, we are <laughs> only one species which can produce uh, something which is unusable. So, uh, this Moses can find a new function for almost everything, like for styrofoam. It's really interesting as well because when I've checked the styrofoam, um, it wasn't this one, it was the one from the, my website, I can show you later. But when, when I've checked uh, using microscope with the scientist, uh, this kind of moss, uh, we recognize that this kind of moss in the traditional classification, uh, it's a moss which living at, on stones and rocks. So now they start to treat this styrofoam as a rock as well. So it's really, um, it's, uh, it's shoe environment with uh, the white strawberry. I found it in a forest two years ago and it's still living at the botanical garden and every year it has a fruits. Um, <laughs> uh, and even on a, a plastic bottle, they can uh, live there because um, when we put something in the forest and during long time uh, inside the bottle, some organic matter appear. And after that, it's enough to, even one centimeter, it's enough to uh, start uh, to growing. Yeah. And this is, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, plastic form as well. But it looks like a uh, rotten wood and it starts to have this kind of behavior as well. It starts to be a rotten wood for this kind of species. And I have some, you can see here, because I, I did also some uh, macro photographs for my book. Um, it's still in progress, it's not ready yet. Um, so you are first people who can see this. And if we go to the microscope pictures, it's really interesting because here you can see that this transgression between plastic and um, plants, it's going really, really deep. Uh, if we use microscope, we can see the uh, micro parts of plastic. Uh, I found it at uh, textile, in a textile environment, let's say. Um, so it's a part of um, polymers from our clothes. And also here we can see a plastic um, part of the polymer textile and micro parts of algs. Yeah, and I decided to work with botanical garden 
because I also had an idea to uh, put uh, my collection officially to the botanical garden to make a the idea was to make a new department, official department at the Botanical Garden dedicated to these post-waste environments. Because uh, if you go into the Botanical Garden, you can find um, many kinds of species, but they are always related to nature in the traditional sense. Like they are from uh, different kinds of ecosystems. Usually they are real species. They are important species for us. So I decided that maybe we have to extend the botanical garden for this new kind of environments because uh, if people change something like 90% of ecosystem, uh, why uh, we don't talk about it in the botanical garden? So after two years, they agree to make this new department. And this is a part of the <laughs> of this department. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I put a map, uh, descriptions for everything, and it's official, like you can see, uh, it's Center for Living Things, Department of uh, uh, Illegal Waste Dumping Sites. And uh, it, there is a department, <laughs> there is a post-waste post department. Um, and I also um, show this project as an uh, art project in galleries. I think, in my opinion, this is the most boring uh, part of the project. <laughs> it's not, but uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's more like installation in the galleries. Uh, so I, I decided to show it also uh, like in a museum, like in a natural history museum. So I use these museum cases with descriptions. Um, of course, with logo of the Center for Living Things, it's really important. Um, so that's how I show it in the galleries, usually. And I use also aquariums. Um, they have special watering systems, so they can live inside for months. Um, it's also to popularize this uh, problem uh, because I can take a little part of this illegal wastelands into the aquarium and then I can go to many spaces to show it to the people and talk about it. So this is a part of a textile environment which I found in the pine forest next to Warsaw. So it's called yeah, textile environment type pine forest. It's typical for pine, pine forest. And this is um, polymer, I don't remember. Here is the description. Polymer and textile habitat, rail trackway type. Yeah, it's uh, this all wasteland based on parts from the old cars. Um, and it's also next to Warsaw. It's from Vienna. Yeah, this is uh, post-carpet, let's say. <laughs> I'll be that. Uh, 
Mm, usually I use also special light to, uh, because they are still living inside. Um, Mob environment for Santitas. Okay. Um, maybe I can talk something more. I have more time. I have more time. Or maybe questions. Okay. So it was 20 minutes. Yes? Wow. Okay. Okay, maybe we can talk uh, after and you can ask me uh, when we'll have a time for questions. So. I think you must all be uh, full of questions, and Diana has, has given us a little bit more time also to, to, to ask her to expand more about her work. But before that, we're very lucky to have uh, Wood Robado from uh, uh, the uh, uh, Critical Ecologies Research Stream at uh, Goldsmiths University. Wood is a senior lecturer and head of visual cultures department at Goldsmiths, University of London. His work focuses on contemporary art within the wider environmental humanities and is informed by the spatial theme of dwelling, 20th century philosophy, and new forms of political eco-theory. Wood co-leads the Critical Ecologies Research Stream as part of Technologies, Worlds, Politics at Goldsmiths. He's contributed numerous papers to conferences and has published on topics such as local experimentations in rurality, Colony Collapse Disorder, you have to tell us about that, and the scalar effects of the Anthropocene. So Wood, over to you. So Wood is going to respond to both papers, and then we'd like to open it up for your comments and questions. So okay. over to you. Thank you both, uh, Ruben and Maya, for inviting me. And I will try to keep it concise. This is kind of on the hoof. This is the first time I've heard these presentations. But I'm already kind of sensing uh, really interesting ways to, to make connections um, and, and look for uh, different kinds of resonances. And I thought while listening that it might be easiest in this response to kind of break down um, our discussion into, into maybe three categories. So I thought maybe we could revisit um, certainly the aesthetics of the plasticine, but also the politics of the biopolitics, that makes sense. Um, then maybe think more about what theoretical frameworks uh, are introduced in your book, certainly, but also might then connect with your, your practice, Diana. And uh, then I'm sure we all have questions about our own responsibility in this, this set of conditions that we experience today. So maybe we can reflect on uh, what's possible, impossible, desirable, uh, undesirable, etc. So uh, thinking, going back to, to politics, biopolitics, I think, Amanda, you had a really good um, clear uh, challenge in your in your talk about um, how it's how it's conceivable for us to perceive our own plasticization, and um, I was you know in preparation for tonight, kind of combing the internet looking for very recent um, articles, and I was really surprised to find how um, 
how what I did find became kind of representative of what we might think of as a volatility or an ambivalence that we might have to this material that we understand um, to be um, man-made, certainly, but also now kind of taking on an, a life or a non-life of its own. So just, uh, just to say a couple of those examples were an article where uh, it was revealed that in order to subsidize what is perceived to be a drop in fracking due to climate change politics in the US, more plastic is going to be produced by companies like ExxonMobil and Shell uh, so as to find something to do with the excess of ethane that comes out of that fracking process. So there's a kind of answer to fracking with more plastic, which I thought was really problematic and, and shocking. But then in the same week, you get articles you know, from the BBC explaining how China has just decided to ban all single-use plastics because of its incapacity to continue uh, with their landfills, with their growing population. So you have these two kinds of um, gestures or answer, answers or solutions to the problem that is the plasticine, but they, they're taking very different approaches, but those approaches are happening simultaneously. So that kind of suggests that there's a, an ambiguity about how we, we talk about this and how we, how we can deal with it. Um, also, I'm kind of mindful of the work of, of Heather Davis. I don't know if many of you have, have read Heather's work on, on queering plastic and queering ecologies, but she's quite um, uh, interesting to read due to her emphasis on, again, uh, as you both have brought up, this materiality that's at once opaque, but also very malleable. So there are many pros to plastic and many cons to plastic, and they're all kind of messed and mixed up together. Um, so maybe that's something we can, we can think about a bit more. Um, so uh, moving on, just because I'm aware of time, to, to maybe pulling out some theory. I, I might turn to you first, Amanda, if that's OK. Amanda's book, by the way, is, is a must read. It, it gives you a kind of art historical trajectory, but it also grapples with quite a bit of philosophy that, to my mind, hasn't really been applied to um, eco-theory in, in this way before. Um, so one of the things that you brought up in your talk had to do with um, envisioning and aestheticizing uh, our set of conditions. And it made me kind of think of, uh, in your book, how you write about um, a Hegelian point of view with regards to time and futurity. So um, Catherine Malibu is who you reference in her reading of Hegel. Um, and the point that I wasn't aware of that I find completely compelling is that Malibu writes about Hegelian futurity in terms of plasticity. So this idea that we can um, work with or get beyond the restrictions of our present moment and maybe end in this ideal state of enlightenment is, is maybe interestingly tied to plastic in, in a more contemporary sense, um, as you write about. And that maybe connects with a lot of the principles of what's called eco-modernism today, and about how um, through finding new innovative uses for things like plastic, we can continue to technologize a solution to an otherwise dire future. So there's that kind of thread of thinking in terms of time and the future and, and um, reparation, which you could also connect to what you say about greenwashing in your text. Uh, but then there's this really um, 
unexpected but, but amazing focus on Georges Bataille and expenditures of waste and how I think this is maybe where your subtitle Drive to, Drive to Waste comes from because inherently as human beings, Bataille would argue, we're built to, to want to unravel ourselves and so wasting whatever it happens to be, in this case it's a, you know, a real kind of damaging material, it is part of um, anthropos, is part of, of part of being human. So I wonder, Amanda, first, if you could just maybe, in relation to what you said about envisioning and, and aesthetics, is there a way to kind of unpack those two points of view a little bit more for us? Um, so expenditures of waste and then this kind of idea of a future that's solvable through Hegelian <laughs> truths. <laughs> Big question, I'm sorry. I'm gonna line it all up. <laughs> I think, okay, I think I, I also wanna to respond to some of the points that you, that you raise about the biopolitical too, um, and also to think about um, what Deanna is doing is uh, very much in line with the kind of queer, queer plastic futures in many ways because she's showing entities that actually exceed uh, exceed a kind of biopolitics. So I think, I mean, one of the, philosophically, um, what I one of the dilemmas that I that I kind of outline in my book is uh, we think we waste, but we don't. We should waste. Waste would be a total expenditure of energy, or at least this is what Bataille would have us think. When Bataille struggles with um, Hegel, he's struggling with Hegel's plasticity. And, and so Malibu, when she takes up Hegel's plasticity or philosophical plasticity, she's, she's dealing with the fact that Hegelian teleology is somehow inescapable, you know? And so, and then she raises um, this other connotation. You know, in some ways, plasticity is a certain kind of philosophical disposition. And in, in that way, it's, it's quite utopian. It's a kind of openness and, and movement of thinking. But then she's also, she also raises um, via Derrida, like the, the um, plasticity is also has implications with plastics, uh, plastic uh, bombs, like explosives. Mm -hmm. and, so, and so she's like, okay, that, that's, that's also uh, implied in or that could be raised in terms of uh, the destructuration of thinking as its own operation. And that, of course, Derrida inherits from Bataille. That was, that was kind of part of the lineage there. Mm -hmm. So Bataille is always like, but we can, we can never get out. We can never get out of uh, Hegelian's teleologies. And so it has to be a matter of uh, a, a kind of expenditure of energy on another register, like right. kind of non-thinking as thinking, or it's always abutting there. And so I think, and, and I think this is part of our struggle with plastics. Like, we, like the plastics in their development, in their evolution, they are very utopian. Uh, we want them to do so many things, but when you know when you raise this article, like okay, we're gonna you know we're looking at countries that are banning plastics, and then and companies that are increasing plastics. What you what you're what we're producing is a kind of blind spot where there are going to be that that means there will be no place for plastics. So our problems with plastics aren't just in its in their production. It is the fact that we produce them 
uh, in ever more, with ever more complexity. But it's also that they, we don't take care of them, and that's Gay Hawkins' argument. Yeah. That, you know, they're in the, you know, it's in the oceans, and now it's microplastics as well, and so, and now it's, you know, it's in the air, and then there's this kind of, and that's what I mean. It's like the economy. We, we have these these kind of limits, and then we're like, I can't think that anymore. And then it's and then and then you have these eruptions, like you realize on the ecological register, there are eruptions of plastic because we didn't account for it. So it's that it's the fact that we don't account for it uh, that that's how it starts to that's the way in which plastic as this material recalcitrance actually exceeded our own plasticity, and it showed us our limitations and the limitations of economy, and that's what it does. And then I think we have a kind of recuperation, um, but also on a different register. I think what uh, Deanna's work is showing is, is, I would say, I mean, I'm quite compelled by Elizabeth Pavanelli's notion of gianto power, mm -hmm. as opposed, as kind of the new, uh, a new term at the very, end or limit of the biopolitical. So now we have to think in geological terms, but there are these geological forces too, and I think plastic is one of those. Mm -hmm. we, if we want to get at these spatiotemporal dimensions, we have to kind of invoke uh, the geological. 